0: hey we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from edwards lake church and we hope that you recognize the message of god as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching we pray that this message will challenge you motivate you or touch you in some way let's open the bible together that was better than I expected, as far as the verbal response. Uh, 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 just for some reason, this weekend has been a a kind of a sleepy weekend for a lot of people, and I've heard quite a few of you this morning say, "Oh, I'm just so tired today. I don't I don't know why." And unfortunately, this sermon is not going to help you a whole lot because this sermon is a result of a bit of a nerdy moment that I had a few months ago. And uh, we were going through the minor prophets and uh, the major prophets, and I was doing some studies here with, with the prophets and the captivity and all of that. And, and also doing a study elsewhere where we were going through some of the minor prophets and we were digging through the book of Joel and looking at all the, uh, the, the pictures and images in Joel of water and thirst and desert land and just all these images surrounding the concept of water. And, of course, that led me down some rabbit holes, and, and in this class, when we were talking about Ezekiel, we were talking about water flowing from the throne of God, and Janet said, hey, I want you to do a whole lesson on that. So, this lesson has been building for a couple of months of, of just nerdy moments, and uh, so, generally, that kind of study doesn't lead to the most enthusiastic, exciting study, Uh, But maybe it will be interesting for you today. Uh, I am hoping it doesn't go down on the list of my worst sermon. Uh, We have a list of those, by the way. Uh, My wife will laugh as soon as I say original monotheism, uh, which she qualifies as one of the worst sermons I've ever preached. I think second to another nerdy sermon that I gave called moralistic therapeutic deism which she also does never want me to preach again. Uh, Maybe maybe this one won't be so bad. But uh, in, in digging into that, I do want us to look at a pattern through Scripture about water flowing from the throne of God. Because there's an interesting image that I think has some lessons attached to it But to get to the lessons, we have to go through a little bit of those, uh, wade through the nerdy waters of looking up some passages uh, about this topic, uh, and maybe you'll be able to keep up and understand where I'm going with some of this. that all being said, let's let's jump on in. So there's this repeated pattern from, from beginning to end of Scripture, of water being associated with the presence of God. And it begins back in the very beginning uh, with just the, the image of God himself. And while, I'll try to give you time to turn to some of these passages. But over in Jeremiah, Jeremiah right at the beginning of the book, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, you've got God associating himself with this image of water. Uh, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And so God here associates himself as if he is a fountain of living water. And that should not be a foreign concept to us because, as we know, Jesus makes the same image the same parallel himself when he's speaking to the woman at the well he calls himself a a uh, the living water and so that that image that Jesus uses comes straight out of the book of Jeremiah God is the source of life giving water Uh, really the expression living water is, is not a you know we look at that in spiritual term It literally was their idiom or their expression for moving water or running water. So a stream would be filled with living water. A river would have living water in it as opposed to a pool which was still water. That was dead water because it was not flowing. It was not moving. And so God uses the expression, I am like a river. I am like a stream. I have flowing water coming from me. And that's important because flowing water was clean water. It was good water. It was water that was not filled with germs and grime. Uh, I've noticed we have a creek that flows through our backyard. And when we've had a lot of rain like we've had this year, it's beautiful. Uh, it's got this nice flowing, uh, just just. It, it's beautiful, we don't mind uh, the kids playing in it When it hasn't rained in a little while And instead of it being a flowing stream It is a series of puddles that have sat there for a while Things start growing in the water And it's growth And it just doesn't have that same vibrancy to it That you have when it is a flowing body of water G- God is saying he is the flowing body of water he is a life-giving stream of water. And then when he decided to create, he created that same image. Uh, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 and the description of the Garden of Eden, there's this odd detail in, in, the, in the passage. And the reason I say it's odd is because it serves no functional purpose from a geographical standpoint which is often how we think about it genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 8 the lord planted a garden in eden in the east and there he placed the man he had formed the lord god calls to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food including the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil The river, a river, went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which uh, runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, the reason I say that serves no functional purpose is we don't know where those rivers are. And I don't mean we, those who lived 2,000 years after Christ. I mean we, including Moses, who wrote this down. They didn't know where those rivers were. There was a lot of debate as far as, was even the one that they still called Euphrates the Euphrates that is mentioned here, or is it just a river that was also named Euphrates because that was the name of a famous river from the beginning of time. These rivers seem to have been erased during the reforming of our world that we call the flood. So why does it make such a big deal Here at the beginning in the description of the Garden of Eden about these four rivers. I think the point is the very beginning. Out of Eden came the source of four incredibly great rivers. The source was an amazing source. And then you look down in chapter 3, verse 8, we find out that the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God. So this is a place where God himself would come. It was, in a sense, as I've talked about before in several settings, a, a, the first tabernacle, the first dwelling of God among men. It was the first meeting place of man with God. And so because it is a place where God Himself is, it's interesting that it makes a big deal that it is also at the source of many rivers. We'll keep reading. We've got Mount Sinai. That's the next place we really read about where God's presence is, because we know that God at least temporarily showed himself in some form on this mountain. Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, over in Deuteronomy chapter 4. While it is itself in a desert, it is interesting that when the people are brought there, you'll remember the story in Exodus 17, they needed water. And so God had Moses split the rock where there was a spring of water that poured forth enough water to feed or to, to quench the thirst of millions of people depending on how large we think the children of Israel were at that point. That's a lot of water. And I don't believe that that was a one-and-done occasion. It was something God did to provide for the people during the time of their stay there. And so there at the mountain, you've got the source of water being revealed to the people. You look over in Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33, you've got this stated. For the majestic one, our Lord, will be there. The place of rivers and broad streams where ships that are rowed will not go. A majestic vessel will not pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your ropes are slack. They cannot hold the base of the mass or spread out the flag. Then abundant spoil will be divided and the lame will plunder it. And there are none who will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. And then the verse that essentially started this entire little nerdy uh, research project was Joel chapter 3, verse 18. In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will flow with water and a spring will issue from the Lord's house watering the valley of Acacia. And so you've got again this description of where God is there is also a spring or a source of water and it will be a mighty source of water because it is coming from God. Then you've got passages like Ezekiel chapter 47, which in the description of the new temple that is being built to replace the temple that's been destroyed during their captivity, there would be a stream, a fountain, a a river that would flow directly from the throne of God himself. It says there the last verse, or or verse, uh, let's see, this is Ezekiel chapter 47, and I'll read verse 12. All kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. Turn with me over to the book of Zechariah. If you've turned nowhere else, at least turn here. The book of Zechariah, and we're going to come back to this verse, but I, I want you to see it with your own eyes. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be open for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Now skip down to chapter 14 verse 8. Here it says on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter Alike. On that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. And so again you've got this picture even in the new Jerusalem, in the new temple, the place where God will dwell, the place where God's presence will be. It is a, there is a, a fountain or a stream or a source of water in which people will have their sins and iniquities washed away. You can keep going. What is it Jesus says about Christians? John chapter 7, verse 38. Here it says, The one who believes in me, as scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The church over in Revelation chapter 7 is described this way, For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them, He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 17, Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely and then even heaven itself psalm 46 verse 4 says there is a river its streams delight the city of God the holy dwelling place of the most high God is within her she will not be toppled God will help her when the morning dawns this isn't all of the passages but I think it's enough to at least make a pattern, that God often associates himself with a spring of water, a stream of water, a river of water, the source of rivers, that he himself is is sitting there where the river flows out from his throne, and it is a river of living water, a source of life for those who will come to him. So what's the point? Well, that was it. I just wanted to do an academic nerdy study, make you do the same thing that I often do. No, there, there's a point to this. Uh, and and there, there's a pattern. There's, a, there's a, a, a a lesson for us in trying to understand God and his presence, God and his revelation, God and the things that he has said about us. Now, it's interesting. This... this little list here while it is not a completed list uh, it's interesting how often Jesus himself also associates himself with water I didn't put these up on the screen but you've got all of the instances in which Jesus in his physical life uh, associated himself with water Jesus himself being baptized he wasn't baptized for the reason we're baptized but he does, to fulfill all righteousness, find himself being immersed in water. Jesus calming the storm. Jesus walking on water. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus teaches about living water. He talks about being born both of water and spirit. Over and over and over again, Jesus himself associates his teaching, his ministry, his work with water. And I think all of that is to call to remembrance for the Jews something that is really important. Jesus understands that God himself is sitting on a throne that is the source of life-giving water. Jesus himself is associated with that. You see, through Scripture, if you look from beginning to end, what you have is an escalation. Uh, God's throne at the beginning really isn't noticed. At the beginning, you've got God not sitting on a throne in the Garden of Eden, but he is walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Uh, We don't know how often he did that. We know that it seems to have been their expectation. Uh, They hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, so they hide not as if that's the first time he's ever appeared. This is something that seems to be a regular occurrence with them. They commune with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And so while there's no throne mentioned there, there is fellowship. It is once sin is brought into the world that now God places himself on his throne above the world. And in every instance, you've got a a bigger revelation of what that throne looks like. You go back and look at our list, you know, Mount Sinai, he's displayed as being a god of power, not necessarily one on the throne, but one who is displaying himself as very separated from us. Isn't that the impression you get at Mount Sinai? It's not a calm loving God walking through the garden with Adam and Eve he's a God who is displaying himself in such a way to produce and make fear fear he wants the people to be scared and so he displays himself in in, in earthquakes and thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and they put perimeter stones around the mountain because the people, if they were to approach the mountain, they would immediately die because there was a separation between God and his people. I know there's a buzzing going on. My wife is looking at me like, she knows I can't hear it because I literally can. I can just watch what's going on. So we'll, uh, we'll just uh, keep going. And uh, tune the buzzing out like you're used to tuning me out like 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 do the buzzing the way you normally do anyway um so we've we've got mount sinai and 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 it is it is basically a, a display of god being separated from the people the only person allowed in god's presence is moses And we have a few instances where maybe the elders ate in the presence of God. You have those other little glimpses of that, and we'll talk about some of that uh, in two weeks when we do our next lesson on the Lord's Supper. But it is interesting. We go from from unhindered fellowship with God in the garden to very hindered relationship at Mount Sinai, where God is displayed in power to produce fear, and it works. Then we've got the, temp- the tabernacle, where there's still that separation, but there's that, you know, the, the, the holy place where only priests can go, and the most holy place where only the high priest can go, because that is where God's glory is. That is the footstool for God's feet as he sits on his throne. And what you have described through the prophets is that God sits on his throne in heaven. The train of his robe fills the temple because the temple is essentially where God rests his feet. That's the image. That's what we're given. That's still a great separation between God and his people. But it's a a majestic idea of a throne, is it not? The throne in heaven, the place on earth being where God rests his feet. The same picture as in the temple. But then you get to the new temple and and that is a temple that is built around the throne of God. It is a place where God's throne can actually be in the temple. Isn't that an interesting escalation? That we did have a temple that was merely where God put his feet but it was not worthy of God's throne itself. But now in the the new temple, it's where God's throne actually is and we know that that is actually a a description of the church itself because by the time you get to the building of the church God's throne is in here It's back to being personal it's back to being an unhindered relationship it's back to having one-on-one fellowship with God again Because God can sit on the throne of our hearts. He can dwell within us. But then we also know there's a sense in which God's throne is bigger than us. Because there still is that heavenly throne. And God has invited us to come to his throne room if we will just belong to him. And that picture of God's throne, uh, by the time you get to Revelation... And you see the picture of God's throne that is in some ways revealed in the church, but also is in a greater way revealed in reality when we get to join Him in heaven. It helps us to appreciate the power and the majesty and the glory and the greatness of our God. That He is a God who can both sit on the throne of heaven, which is beyond our imagining but he is also a God who can sit on the throne of our hearts and be Lord of our lives. It's it's a great picture. What's great about that is this, to relate it back to our concept of water, that because God's throne is the source of living water, it is the source of life-giving water, God's throne becomes the source Of abundant life it becomes the place you go if you want to live and live abundantly if you want to live eternally you go to God and you let God come to you because both of those are a necessary part turn with me over to Acts chapter 17 Acts chapter 17 Peter's, or excuse me, Paul is giving a, a sermon here. He's over in Athens, and he gives a, one of my favorite sermons in all of Scripture right here. But I love what he says here in verse 25. Neither is he served talking about God, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Uh, he is not one who can be contained within the walls of a building. He is not a God who has ever dwelt behind the curtain. He is a God who is greater than all of that. Now read verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. You want to live you want to truly have life, you want to truly have the blessing that come, you get it by coming to the throne of God. You get it by going to the source of abundant life. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to read verse 13. It says here, In the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave the good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is blessed. He is the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is immortal, who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be glory, or honor, and eternal power. Amen. Now, notice the juxtaposition here. The, the extreme contrast you have here in the expression. One is, in the presence of God, who gives life to all. That's where we're supposed to be. The other side of it is, who lives immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one can or has ever seen. So in one sense, we are in the presence of God. In the other sense, we are excluded from the presence of God. In, in one sense, we have a very one-to-one, uh, close, intimate fellowship with God. That's because he sits on the throne of our hearts. And on the other side, we we can't at all have an, a, an, a, an experience or a presence with God because he dwells in a place where we can't be it, they're both true because the way God has set this up is he is not a God who who is located or geographically held, he is not a God who, who dwells within a building the way the pagans would have thought of it he is a God who is bigger than that better than that because as a God as, as, because of who he is, he is He's uncontainable. I love the way Jesus words it over in John 10, 10. Here he says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. In abundance. What God has offered to us because of who he is, because of his character, because of his authority, because he is a God who is the source of all life, He has given us the opportunity to have life abundantly. The other thing I I think you learn through this, and, and maybe part of why it's not easy to understand is because I'm the one trying to explain it, and I'm doing a bad job explaining what honestly isn't very explainable. But God's throne itself will only truly be understood when we're actually capable of understanding it. I know that sounds like a cop-out answer. What does it mean to have a throne from which flows the rivers of life? What does it mean to have water, a spring of water that flows from the throne that on that grove trees, and the trees produce fruit year-round and 12 different types of fruit, and you've got all of these descriptions that we look at and we go, well, I kind of get it. But then I don't get it at all Because I understand the image But I don't understand necessarily The meaning behind the image Or I don't understand how that could be true Understanding what I know about our world well, That's part of the problem His throne isn't part of our world It's bigger than that John himself says over in 1 John Chapter 3 verse 2 and 3 We don't, we don't yet understand And, and notice If you look over there, it tells us when we finally will understand. This is 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, we we don't understand, we don't know, we we can't comprehend yet exactly the way all of this works and how it's going to work and what it'll look like and how we will experience. We don't know until we know. We don't know until this life is over. We won't know until we are like him. Then we can understand it. But until we are like him, we cannot understand it. Because it makes no sense to us. And, and I take some comfort in that. Now I, I've told you all before, I, I don't really think in pictures. So maybe this is even a little bit more difficult for me than it is for you. But as I kind of dwell on and think on and try to dig deeply into the concepts of what a heavenly throne is, and how that works and we've got it in a lot of different ways through scripture we've got descriptions of power, we've got descriptions of authority, we've got descriptions of of welcomeness where he has invited people to his throne, we've got descriptions in Ezekiel of a mobile throne that is carried on a chariot which is carried by four angels who can move each direction and you've got the picture of God on top of the throne who is lit up on fire I mean you've got these incredible images of what this throne is like but in almost every single one you've got the image of water of coming to the water that we need to come and find our life in the water. This idea of, you know, particularly in Ezekiel chapter 47 where he is shown this water that comes from the throne of God and where it begins, it's merely a trickle of water and he walks through it and it's ankle deep but then the angel continues to walk him toward the throne and it becomes knee deep and then as he walks even closer to the throne it becomes waist deep and the picture there is that the the closer you get to the throne the more abundant is the life giving water that flows from the throne That, that this throne is just this place where there is plenty of water for all who need life and so I don't find it much of an accident that when God created a plan on how we as sinners could have our sins taken away and we could find life again and be recreated that he designed a plan that did that through water. Because the life-giving water flows from the throne of God. What better image Of coming to the throne of God than to come through water and that's the image we have through the New Testament of exactly what we're supposed to do Mark 16 16 he who believes and is immersed and is baptized will be saved and he who does not believe will not be saved will be condemned that picture of walking through the water or going down in the water and coming back out of it, that is the picture of what it means to approach the throne of God. You look over in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice again that, that concept of Baptism, of immersion, of being taken down in the water and brought back out. Romans chapter 6, again, the same sort of image that's given to us on how we essentially transition from life on earth to life with God. Isn't that the, 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 the concept there? Look with me there at Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body... Uh, Ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since the person who has died is freed from sin. We often just focus on the image there of burial. That's normally when we approach Romans chapter 6, we focus on the image of burial. And and that's correct, that's there. But there's also an image of a transition, a walking through from one side to the other. That over here on my side, I am a sinner. I am lost. I am enslaved to sin. I am hopeless here. But if I'm willing, I can walk through the water and come up on the other side. Something new, I leave all of this behind, and I go to the other side so that I can be completely new. I can walk from my selfish side to the side where there is the throne of God, where he is Lord, where he, and where he rules my life. That image of coming through the water is, is entirely intentional. Turn with me to this one if you 've not turned to the other because I haven't given you much time turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 1 Peter chapter 3 we normally focus on verse 21 but I want us to read the verses that come before it so that we have the context of why verse 21 is important they're a little bit confusing but I, I hope to make short work of it 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when when God patiently uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now stop there, and I want to read verse 21 in a moment. What we have here is a picture of God bringing salvation to a group of people. A group of eight people, specifically. And what you have is, back in times past, there was a world full of sin... And God washed that world clean with the flood. And through that water, he saved eight people. He didn't, and we often use it this way, he didn't save Noah and his family from the flood. He saved Noah and his family from the world of sin. The flood was the means by which he saved Noah. Noah not that which he saved them from. Everybody with me? Kind of using weird English here, so i got to make sure I'm making sense. All right. So he saves Noah and his family with water from a world of sin. Everybody with me? Jesus kind of walks through a similar transition. This is the part we often forget. Jesus himself transferred from a physical life to a spiritual existence, and it gives a description of what that looks like. We have all sorts of arguments about what this means, that he died righteous for the unrighteous. He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. What we can easily understand is what's being said is that Jesus went from living on this earth And he transitioned from life on this earth to a spiritual existence. And the way he did that was he went and he made proclamation to the spirits in prison. And then he went and uh, he uh, was made alive by the spirit. Similarly, we are saved. On one sense, we are saved like Noah. We are saved from a world of sin by water and given a new life. That's what happened to Noah, right? A world of sin, God brought water, and through by the water, he sent to a new life. But also like Jesus, he helps us transition from a merely physical life to a life being led and walking by the Spirit. We are transitioned through the water from an earth. The existence to a to a heavenly existence we are raised to walk in the life so read verse 21 with me baptism being immersed in water which corresponds to this it's just like the examples i just gave you just like noah just like jesus baptism now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body but a pledge the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Just like Jesus, and because of Jesus, God uses baptism to save you from a life of sin and from a merely physical life to a better life, to a spiritual life to a life that's not about the washing of dirt from the flesh, but it is your conscience before God. That's the difference. What you find is, through scripture, when you look at these passages, they are teaching us that God's throne is only approachable through water. And. When you look at all of the images through the Old Testament of how God's throne is associated with water, it makes perfect sense that God would use that as the means to display our approaching of God's throne. Yes, we go through the water to get to God's throne because God's water or God's throne is the source of water. That image, that picture is on purpose. Because it helps us to appreciate what we're doing. You know, I, I fear sometimes that we have let baptism and we've let the Bible's teaching on baptism become just merely a step. You know, we talk about the five steps of salvation, right? Here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's kind of that final step that you got to do. Uh, it's just a step. It's a, uh, as some people put it, an outward sign of an inward grace. It's just an act of obedience. It's just the next step. It is is your act of submission. But I want it to become bigger than that to you. Because I think God chooses it as a big symbolic thing. It is what actually brings you into the presence of god's throne it is what brings you unhindered back into that kind of relationship that adam and eve were able to have with god in the garden of eden it brings us into that kind of fellowship with god because it washes away our sin, because it is a sign of our commitment, because it is something that we do to show obedience, because it is a step towards salvation, because of all of those things, what it does, the image all the way through the Bible from beginning to end is that you go through the waters of baptism so that you might be in God's presence that you might belong there I I don't I don't know that we let that hit home as much as we should and we I, I think it's just part of our human nature we have a habit of just making of, of making things simple we simplify everything and, and I think through scripture what you find is that God is rarely ever simplifying things. What God is doing is making things bigger more important more amazing more fantastic We want to simplify things because it makes it easy to understand, easy to dismiss But what God wants to do is for you to realize He isn't just asking you to do something in obedience. He is offering you the opportunity to walk through the stream that flows from his throne and come to him personally. And I hope you'll be willing to do that today. If you're not a child of God, God hasn't just offered you uh, forgiveness. God hasn't just offered you a relationship uh, in a you know slave master relationship, although that is true, God hasn't just offered you to be a child in His family. God has offered for you to be in His presence, and that is amazing. I know this was a really nerdy and roundabout way to teach that lesson, but I want I want this water. In here to mean more than okay I got baptized I want it to mean, hey I have come to the throne of God and that is where I belong because if that becomes your perspective that is something you will never let go of because it is such an honor and a blessing to belong to God if you need the invitation to be baptized into Christ to be able to walk uh, up to his throne uh, then we encourage you to let us know how we can help you if we can baptize you if we can teach you more if we can pray for you please come forward as we stand and sing this song Hosanna, you're my thanks for listening and studying god's word with us we want to help you draw closer to jesus as your lord if you feel some need as a result of today's message whether that be a need to seek god's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.